Hi, I'm Manish Thavan with my good friend Puneet Khurana. We run a blog by the name of stoicinvesting.com. This is our podcast series. Life is too short to learn from just your own experiences. To inculcate vicarious learning, we will be interviewing and profiling interesting people from different walks of life. Hopefully, this endeavor will shorten the learning curve for our audience. As you evolve in your journey of stock market investments, you soon realize that stock selection alone doesn't really take you anywhere. Money management is perhaps the most important aspect of this game, which cannot be ignored. Now, if you search the web for money management and risk management, your search most likely would throw out two names, Ralph Wentz and Van Thau. In today's episode, we share with you a fascinating conversation I had with Ralph Wentz. Ralph Wentz is a trading systems expert and has programmed successful trading systems for fund managers and sovereign wealth funds. Ralph is an authority on the subject of position sizing and his statistical techniques and optimal F are the industry standards. Please listen in. Hi Ralph, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Okay. Great, great. Well, Ralph, first of all, I would like to thank you for taking out the time for from your busy schedule. I, I really my, my appreciate pleasure, it. My pleasure, Right. Ralph, tell me, so what are you up to these days? Uh, I mean, I know you're running a hedge fund, but tell us more about it, its size and performance so far. Well, it's I'm still in the setup phase. It, it, it's not actually going to begin until September 1. Oh, I see. I have... Uh, far more sizable commitments in terms of assets to it than I expected, which is a good problem to have. The, <laughs> the, the problem with that is is that I wasn't expecting that, and so there's a lot of uh, business setup that has to get you know taken care of and be put in place here, so that's what I'm busy doing these days. There's a lot of uh, just business setup types of things. So uh, definitely a good problem to have, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with... Uh, what's coming in so far but as i say i i, I wasn't expecting it. and uh i think uh the long side of equities might be very 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 promising here in the next several years i think it's it's the right program at the right time it's just an uncomfortable thing to launch being a long equities program it's interesting that you say that ralph because people i speak with generally are so skeptical because of the uh, huge valuations I'm sure you don't really look into valuation. Well, I, I, I get questioned about that a lot. Okay, in fact, I was at a, a large foundation uh, a, couple a couple weeks ago, and right. one of the older fellows kind of put the screws to me that you can't come into a place like this and be, you know, promoting long equities when earnings are, you know, about twenty times here. I mean, actually, they're, they're about twenty-five times is what they are. Right. But you know, it's. It's it's an entirely different world with zero to negative interest rate, and I think that I think that these valuations either at a zero to negative interest rate world, you almost have to look and say, well, valuation should be infinitely high. What is the alternative? The, the certain loss of fixed income. Uh-huh. That's that's the alternative to putting putting capital at risk. So we're in a situation where I mean, capital has to be exposed to risk now or face the certain loss. And, and the other thing too is the the, the growth of deficits. If this starts to slow, uh, it, it changes the supply picture a lot. Right. And, and and might feed you know further negative rates. It's just a it's a very interesting situation right now. Right. Right. I'll I'll pick your brains on that uh, probably later on because. I was going through uh, Ed Sekota's uh, uh, latest on uh, on what he thinks about the macro analysis and how this credit uh, is going to bust. Uh, but, okay. that's, but that's for later. Uh, Ralph, uh, tell me something about your background. I mean, were you a mathematics whiz kid, a prodigy in your childhood? No, and, and you know, Manish, I don't I don't claim to be any kind of a mathematician. I've had the good fortune of being around some guys who are really, really good symbol manipulators, and, uh, <laughs> and 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 I think I indirectly get credit for sometimes for their abilities. My talent really lied in finding applications for their abilities in in, in this domain. I think. Okay. Uh, 
but I don't I don't hold myself out as any type of of a mathematician or, or anything like that. My, my father was a uh, something of a mathematical savant, and he put a lot of pressure on me as a, as a young boy in that regard. And uh, I didn't have the gifts that he had. And I was aware of that at a young age, and it was, it was quite troubling, really. Okay, I, I think you've been modest. It, it seems it's in the genes. I don't know. I I, I don't know. It's, it's not something. Uh, it's not. It's not something that I fancy that I'm good at. Tell you the truth. I just don't. You know. I don't. I don't. I don't think that uh, I really have any ability in that along that way. But that's uh, that's just my own opinion. We don't see ourselves as others do. I suppose. Right. Right. So you were not into maths, and you ended up uh, writing an amazing book on position sizing. So so what was your background, and how did you get into stock markets? Uh, well, I got a I got a job at a very young age uh, with a large wirehouse as a margin clerk on accounts that were okay to trade positions that included short options. And back then, uh, the, the computerized margin calculations for let's say pairing different types of legs of, of complicated option positions and so forth really wasn't in place. So this was done by hand on the fly. Right. And and it was a kind of a miserable job, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't getting paid anything, and so what I started doing was uh, trading options for my own account then, Okay. Uh, with what little money I had, and, and you know, in short order, I was making more money trading options than I was doing the miserable work, and uh, it was a very lively brokerage. The, the dealing room was, was big and lively, and it had a lot of characters in it, and I was exposed to a lot of ideas. There were a lot of guys are with point and figure charts and so forth, and my curiosity got me asking questions of these guys, and one thing led to another, and that's pretty much how that started. I mean, there, there was a confluence, too. The, 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 the Apple II was just coming out. The PC hadn't yet come out. Okay. I, I started writing programs and teaching myself how to write some code to test out different trading ideas, and bing, bang, boom. Uh, next thing I know, I have guys who are running some sizable amounts of money asking me to test ideas out for them and guys who are, you know, so-called professional gamblers asking me to program up their trading system, their, their staking systems. And I just got everything kind of percolating in my brain working along those lines. And uh, it became lucrative to me at a young age. So I just followed it. Interesting. Look back. Very interesting. Uh, Ralph, I want to have your view on option writing since you mentioned it. Uh, yeah. especially naked option writing or, or for that matter any strategy where the risk is unlimited or not defined okay. uh, usually what the option traders the world over do is consider two standard deviations of a move to be their maximum pain point and okay. calculate their risk management from, from there onwards now Nassim Taleb as we know calls this act stupid since markets okay. are not your fixed variable setup where right. moves happen as per your backtest, uh, right. a five standard deviation move will render you bankrupt in such a strategy. Right. And, and now if you account for it, uh, well, then you cannot bet anything, can you? So what is your take on that? Well, I mean, unless you cap the risk somehow by, you know, being long some very far out the money option. And, and let, let's say we're, we're talking about call options here. Right. Where the risk is truly unlimited. It's not bound at zero. Right. As it would be with writing most put options. Uh, unless you unless you cap it by another option, far out the money, say. Right. In which case you're 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 long on the long side of the smile to what you're writing. The, the volatility smile there. Right. Uh you really are exposing yourself to a an unknown amount of risk. You know, writing that far out option, then you change the risk profile of that. Sure. Uh, there are some instances and some more, let's say, complicated types of instruments with options on where that's not the case. I mean, let's say, well, let's say we're looking at in, <laughs> options on an inverted volatility vehicle. Okay. Well, you're 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 up, if you're writing calls on it, theoretically your risk is unlimited. Realistically, it's not. So I mean, there's there's exceptions to the rule there, and of course, if you're running put options, you your risk is capped at zero. You actually have a you actually have a, a long put option at zero on the thing oh. uh, that you're not well. Uh, the price is actually would be embedded within the put itself that you're writing. I think, however, 
you know, in, in the last 30, 40 years, with the advent of computerized strategies on a finite pool of data that things are being tested on, and that data is, which consists of past past events. Right. Over the past events, many of these computerized strategies will have you doing things on a, you know, entering, exiting on a stop basis. Now, if you flip that situation, that you're not entering or exiting on a stop basis, but rather on a limit basis, then you put yourself in a situation where conceivably, okay, let's say I'm looking at crude oil and I want to be a buyer at, let's say, 35, okay? Right. Rather than having a resting order at 35, I can just write that 35 put over and over. Right. And similarly, if I'm long crude oil and I want to be out at, at, at 50, I can be running the 50 call here over and over. So I, I think now these aren't, these aren't naked, although the put, you could say that's a naked put, but I, I'm, I'm writing it only because my intention is to actually buy it at that point. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's a use for these things that the outside observer might look and go, oh, look, that's a naked put. Well, actually, that's, that's not a naked put. It's, it's a put written uh, with the intention of actually buying it and, and the hope to buy it at that point, in which case it makes no sense not to have written that put, right. not to have picked up that premium. Right. Now, in that sense, it makes complete sense, Ralph. Uh, that is a different strategy altogether, but in that case, you would only be writing to the extent of amount that you have in your pocket. The, you can actually buy that stock if it comes at that price. Uh, now, now, Manesh, we all know the guy who says he's going to buy it and is going to go out and write 10 times that amount. So that's, <laughs> let's be honest. Everybody knows that guy. Right? <laughs> well, I just don't want to be him. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been him. I've been him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And second point, Ralph, about about the stop loss thing that you mentioned. Uh, okay. uh, isn't the black swan thing uh, takes care of that as well? That that logic as well. Because if if a five standard deviation move has to happen, it will run through your stop, won't it? Right. Right. So uh, se- essentially, would it be fair to say that? Uh, if you're going naked, uh, any strategy which where the risk is unlimited or not right. defined, like straddles or strangles, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're pretty much asking for trouble. It's not a question of if, but when you will blow up. Correct. But let's also remember, a short option position is, a, is, is half of a position in the underlying. In other words, to be short calls is half the position of being short the underlying. The other half would be to be long the put on it as well. And the, the point I say that is, any outright position, the same can be said of as a naked position. If I'm, right. if I'm short crude oil, this is the same risk profile, in, with, with the exception of the long put, as I would have with the short call. So it's, there's a fear factor involved when people talk about short options, naked options, that I think has to be brought back down to a ground level by looking at that as a partial position in, in the underlying instrument. Interesting. Interesting, Ralph. That's very, uh, that's a nice way to look at it. But, uh, but the difference probably would be the leverage, right? Well, in most cases, let's say one option equals the same one unit of the underlying, whether we're talking sure. futures options or you know, 100 shares of stock and a lot of the interbank stuff, that's, that's out of my ambit, but I know that can get a little, a little off the uh, right. standard scale that, in that regard. But Right. Uh, so another question related to uh, Talib's hedge fund, which primarily did the opposite of option writers. Uh, in the sense that they kept buying out-of-money options in the hope one fine day when the world least expects it, they will blow up. Probabilistically, right. it's it's functional equivalent to uh, bleeding slowly to death, hoping that a cure would come before their last drop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you rate that as a system in your mathematics? Uh, I actually did a lot of testing on that uh, about 20 years ago, in fact. Okay. A, a ton of testing on it, and it was a my testing showed it to be a very viable strategy longer term. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I think it has to do with the the distributional form seen in real life versus the distributional form of uh, 
what is actually pricing the options themselves, say. Normal with the big smile, okay? Right. And, uh, but, but in any markets that I had tested that in, it seemed to be a very viable strategy. Uh, but now you're going into uh, the Pandora's box of real-world constraints of horizon. And that's something traders and human beings in general are not really prepared to walk off into. People... Right. They're comfortable with things in the limit, okay? And I can tell you that, yeah, that, that will make money in the limit, okay? But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that you care to contemplate because the limit can be very far away. Got it. Okay? Yeah, psychologically very painful to actually execute it. Okay, extremely. And, and same thing with trend following. I mean, guys get beaten up, they raise the white flag, and they say, that's it, I'm going to trend following. And this is a natural progression you see among many traders right and 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 yeah trend following can can make you money but it could be a very long time and and having to you know having to 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 take a lot of punches to the head to get there it's again you have that problem with horizon i mean look let's say let's have even even in a simpler case if i'm most trend following systems say have profitable trades 30 percent of the time right now that means you would expect that after three trades, you would expect one of them to be profitable. And trades, it's a lot of these systems can, can, can last several weeks or months. Now multiply that by three, and that's what you might expect to make. And of course, you could go a lot longer than that. Sure. Most people aren't prepared for the length of horizon that a lot of this stuff it takes to manifest. Right, true. In most most strategies, most strategies really boil down to having patience and nerve. And uh, a lot of guys who do this don't have both of those ingredients. And just having one of them isn't going to help you. Really takes both both those ingredients. And I'm hard pressed to think of any trading strategy uh, short of something where I have a, an edge because of technology or or my position within the structure of things that doesn't require that right interesting interesting so and add to that ralph uh talking about drawdowns you you following your trend following strategy and you're going through one of your worst drawdowns when do you start feeling jittery that maybe there's something wrong with the system itself and the question if the market as a whole has changed compared to your back test or or the system has lost its edge uh, well, that's an interesting point, and I don't want to get into. Uh, there's some areas I don't want to go off on on on, on, the, on this discussion, Manesh. But let me say this, and again, it gets back to patience and nerve. Okay, there's there is no point like that. Okay, okay. There there, there is no there is no magic pill to avoid that. Right. Uh, the best thing you can do is be prepared for. Uh, the case to be in the future to be a lot worse than what you saw in the past, right? And 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 being able to shrug it off and keep doing uh, what your plan called for. Very the idea, the idea that the markets changed and and this and that. These are these are excuses for poorly crafted trading strategies. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. You have to you have to craft stuff with an eye towards. Look, before you start trading it, you've got to look at it and say, okay. What type of market conditions can can really hurt this thing? And you need to address that and see if you can correct that before you get there, before it happens. I, I know with I had an interesting experience in two thousand eight. Okay. And uh I was very overexposed going into the crash. Okay. I ended up getting out of it. It was it was utterly traumatic. I ended up getting out of it and uh with with, with a slight profit across the board. And I called my partner who lived about 500 miles away from me, let's say 700, 800 kilometers away. And I told him, I said, Richard, here's what I've been doing. Uh, I got through this. I made a little bit of money. It was really rough. I, I'm, I fear I may be having more exposure than I think I do. Here's what I'm doing. Tell me where I'm hanging out. And he hung up the phone and said, okay, I'll get back to you. Okay. <laughs> Six months later, he showed up at my door at like 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning with all kinds of graphs and stuff and he had made all this money, went through no pain whatsoever, okay? And, uh, you know, and he told me we have to do something with this. And be, be, it's, you're better off to, before you go through 
the trauma periods in training to look and say what type of future data would really uh, throw sand in the gears of this thing. And, and let me address that within the system structure itself before I actually experience it real time. And that's, that's a much better way to approach things because you can always manipulate your data. Right. Right. To accommodate, you know, where the thing really goes goes to hell on you. Interesting. So essentially, Ralph, what you're saying is that use your use your thinking or use your brain before at the time of strategy making, uh, and shut it off at the time of uh, actual execution. Exactly. And, and and the other the other big part of that Manish, is you know the normal condition of the markets is not one where everyone makes money. And during those times where everyone is making money with something, it's going to stop. And it's going to stop for a considerably long enough period of time to get them to stop doing it. Interesting. And and, and similarly, if, if you, if in using conventional tools and conventional backtesting and conventional data and all the stuff that everyone else has access to, you find something that looks like it works and makes sense that it should work, you need to be very, very, very skeptical of that. The best, the best trading ideas I've ever had, and this is as far as I'm going to go with this, the best systems I've ever come up with never required any backtesting, never required any past data, never required any of that. And those were the best and the most solid. Very and the ones where I don't worry about whether I'm going to come out of a drawdown or not. I know I am. And it may be wise to trade very lightly until someone feels that way about the tools they have. Interesting. Very interesting, Ralph. So uh, that brings me to my next question uh, around uh, around systems and indicators. Ralph, you've coded some market indicators, right? So please tell us what constitutes a good system or a good indicator and how does an idea strike you? And B, how do you check for its robustness? Since you, you just mentioned uh, previously that uh, it's not the back test that tells you whether whether the indicator is robust or not. So what does? No, it is it is the back test that can tell you whether it's robust or not. Okay, and maybe maybe let me clarify. Okay, so you have a trading idea. Okay, and your idea is some rule that any trading idea really all that does is amend the distribution of price. Okay, sure. so we start out with the distribution of price. We apply some rules to it. Now we have a different distribution, uh, which we'll call our, our, our trades or our, 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 you know, performance over each, you know, uh, period of similar time length. Right. And again, any approach can be parameterized. You can go and test out all types of parameters. And you're better off to parameterize as much as you can and to look at the effects of those, not in concert, but individually. Let's suppose I can put 20 parameters to a very robust idea. Okay, so I can parameterize up every, everything about it. Okay, down to what time frames I want to look at it and so forth. And, and by looking at those one at a time, isolating those parameters one at a time, we can look for robustness, which is the single most overarching uh, idea we're looking for in trading. And let me let me elaborate just a little bit further from that. And the reason we need this robustness is, and this is critical, everyone. Everyone who's doing any of this and almost all of the software for doing this and all the approaches and all the data are to get a positive slope on a line that along the horizontal axis, I would have, let's say, my percentage of my stake at risk. And along the vertical axis, I would have what my gain might be as a multiple on that risk. So at zero risk, the multiple is at one. Okay. Right. What I what I have at the end of this period of this trade is multiplied by one. Nothing happens because I risk nothing. And as you move to the right towards a hundred percent exposure, the line has a positive slope. And everyone that I encounter, and I think everyone just about anyone else encounters out there, is primarily concerned with making that slope ever steeper. Okay. Right, and I could send you some graphics on this if you wanted for this. That would be nice. However, however, and, and let me see, let me see if I have them here while we're speaking. Here, I could do this. Okay, okay so, so after, after one period, period, though, in the real world case where what we have to work with on period two is a result of what transpired in period one or in trade one, right? This straight line curves, and now it's what we make or lose is a function of where we are on this curve, not on that straight line. 
okay? Right. And, and this becomes more pronounced as more periods accrue, more trades accrue. And again, there's very critical geometrical points on this curve. And actually, from this curve, I contend we can satisfy whatever trading criteria we have. For example, in my fund, my criteria is to address the fund manager's nemesis being client attrition. And you can say, okay, so why do clients leave a fund manager? Well, they, they leave because you've been too long since an equity high or you're too far from an equity high. So let's address that. And, and actually, that, that can be solved with just being long T-bills. So right. that criteria of minimizing time between equity highs, minimizing distance to equity highs, has to be looked at vis-a-vis -vis a return beyond a given benchmark. Okay, so that, that's the criteria. And that can be solved uh, by how we move between these various critical points along the curve. And to, to, to wind that back there to what my point is on all this, if we start from the premise that everyone is on the one-play line, the straight line with the, the, the slope, ideally positive, because if it's not positive, we're going to have a tough ride, with a positive slope, and, and, and most of their efforts in terms of selection, timing, trading systems, all of it, are to make that slope ever more positive. And the problem with that, and the reason why those efforts I contend are primarily, I don't say they're wasted, but but it's a lot of misdirected efforts. It's, it's generating a lot of heat and smoke for what the payoff is, is because that line's going to bend. And it's the nature of the curve, once it bends, that determines what we're going to make or lose, or how well we're going to satisfy what our investment criterion is. And... Uh, this is part of the problem I have with, with trading systems and so forth in general, because the only thing we need to generate is a positive slope, okay? Right. And, and, and there are things out there where that slope is going to be positive. I mean, it's... Interesting. So, Ralph, uh, let me let me uh, say it again in my own words to uh, to make sure that I understood what you said. Okay. Uh, so, not only can you optimize your system based on the maximum return, uh, the slope of the curve, in essence, you optimizing it for, for the maximum drawdown that it's willing to take. No. What I, want, what I want to optimize for is the certainty that the slope will be positive over the future X periods. Now, now that, that sounds ambiguous. Well, what is X? X is the horizon upon which I want to satisfy my investment criterion. And this leads to Okay, and, and if I want to maximize the, the, the probability that that slope's going to be positive, we're talking solely about robustness. I don't care how positive. I okay. just need it to be positive. But this also opens up something of a Pandora's box where people moan and groan and roll their eyes because the exercise before any of this consists of two parts. Number one, what is my investment criterion? What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Right. If it's just to, quote, make money or make a better return than a bank account. Okay, that's your criterion. It's very uh, amorphous. It's vague. And the more specific you can make it, the, the, the better your plan will be at trying to satisfy it. And yeah. along with the criterion, there's a horizon in which to do it in. Right. Okay? I mean, this gets back to, let's say we're talking about horizons with trend-following systems and so forth. I'm doing a long-term trend-following system, and your horizon is one month. You probably... <laughs> Not on solid footing there. And, and these are the two elements that really have to go, have to be addressed, have to be thought through, right. have to be accounted for before we even begin looking at the trading system. And the trading system has to be looked at not in terms of how profitable it is, but in how certain we can be that it will be profitable, even if just marginally so. Because again, right. all we need is a positive slope to that line. And then we can really get to work on it. Prior to that, there's really very little in terms of uh, uh, actual uh, system crafting, actual pursuit of satisfying the investment criterion. Uh, once, let's say we, we, we have, let's say we have our criterion established, and we have what horizon we're going to do it in, and we have a very robust trading system. Okay, now we're at square one. Now we're ready to start with it. And I just don't see too many people go beyond that point. They get hung up trying to maximize the slope of that curve and, and as well, if that, that slope of the straight line, the one place straight line. And they do so without concern for criterion or horizon. Right. Right. And, 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 and they're really just floundering. They're floundering and their results will reflect that. Interesting. 
Very interesting. You know, I'm just, while you were speaking, I was just thinking in my mind, what you just mentioned can be of paramount importance in personal finance. You know, how you do your asset allocation uh, between uh, various assets and uh, set a target based on timelines uh, without which uh, you don't have a system. Exactly. And the larger the institution generally, and the more successful, the better these things tend to be articulated in terms of criterion and horizon. A good example is a large and successful pension fund. You know your liabilities are going to be in 2019. Okay, you must go about satisfying these today. So how do you do that? Okay, you've established a criterion, you've established a horizon. Now you've got something to begin working with. But as individual traders, people want to short circuit those two initial questions. And they want to jump right to, I want a system that makes lots of money. And there is no such thing. But there's no such thing. Okay. And here's why. There are systems that will give you positive slopes with a certain degree of, of certainty to it. Okay. And that's as good as you're going to get. And the reason is you're not going to trade one contract of, well, what's something that doesn't actually trade? Okay. You're not going to trade one contract of crushed glass. Okay. <laughs> you <laughs> never have a crushed glass contract. <laughs> you never know somewhere. You never know. You know, you know somebody, somebody's looking for a big bag of crushed glass right this minute. <laughs> Somebody between here and Delhi is looking for a big bag of crushed glass, a really big bag of that stuff. But you're not going to trade one one contract of crushed glass, okay, with a 100,000 rupee account as you are with a million rupee account, okay? You're not going to trade just one contract at both those levels. You're going to trade in quantity relative to the size of what you're working with. And furthermore, you're going to trade what you have to work with today is a function of cumulatively what's transpired up till today. So you're going to be on that curved surface, that curved line. And that curved line is going to dictate how much you make or how much you lose. And you can't just jump to the curved line without saying, here's my criterion. Here's the time frame I got to do it in. I need to be certain I'm going to have a positive slope so I have something to work with, which is where the system testing and, and crafting the system come up with. But again, you approach that with the mindset of, all I want is a positive slope. Because you might, you might, you might say, look at this, you make, you make you know, uh, 10,000 rupees a trade in, in crushed glass. Right. If you can just trade one contract of crushed glass, fine. Have at it, but you're not going to. You're going to trade with respect to how much you have at a given moment, which is a function of what's transpired up to the given moment. You're going to. You're going to. You're going to be on that curved line, and that's where all the activity really happens. But to get to that curved line, you've got to. You've got to take care of those other parts first. True, true. Well, Parrot, uh, this this is amazing. Uh, I learned so much through your answer. I must say. And I I can also vouch for the fact that not many fund managers think this deep. Uh, uh, Anyways, you know, I went through your book, uh, Ralph, and I must admit that you've almost converted the whole paradigm of position sizing into some kind of science. You know, my, my question is, is this not physics envy? I mean, searching for an optimal bet size for maximizing returns would have a lot of psychological factors, A, and role of luck, which would not be factored in, right? Well, that's an interesting point. Now, and, and a couple things along along that. Okay, uh, the optimal bet size is a function of criterion, right? Okay. Now, for my criterion, my criterion might not be to maximize gains and all else be damned. Okay. My criterion might be, say, to satisfy the MAR ratio of gains to drawdown. Okay. And and it really I could do by figuring out like let's say what the tangent would be to that line or to a surface in n plus one space for n components a tangent between let's say the point at at zero on the horizontal axis one on the vertical axis and the peak there's a tangent and that tangent's going to be left of the peak and so now that point would satisfy the MAR ratio okay right. <clears throat> there's also a point left of that tangent point where the inflection point changes. That is, if I go to the far left of, let's say, the curved line after a minimal number of plays to generate an inflection point, there's going to be an inflection point where the line goes from concave up to concave down. And that would represent that point where marginal increase in gain is going faster than marginal increase in risk, and that 
flips over. So you might say, you know, that inflection point is a point that maximizes, uh, let's say, a risk-reward ratio, okay? Right. So there are, there are critical points on this curve. In fact, there's a critical point to the right of the curve that has all kinds of applications in the natural world and so forth, where beyond the peak of the curve, that curved line, even though we start out with a positive slope for one play, that curved line then comes and, and penetrates one to the downside, okay? Right. Between the peak and, 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 and the value of one on the horizontal axis. And that point represents, you know, if I keep multiplying something by a number less than one, I'm approaching zero. Now, Let's back up a second. Okay, this curve can represent a trader's account. Uh -huh. It can also represent, let's say, a uh, federal deficit. It can represent growth of bacteria in a petri dish. It can <laughs> represent, it, it can represent, uh, let's say, uh, Fisher's evolutionary statement that that the, the greater the variance in a species, that the, the greater its probability of of not going extinct. Interesting. Why, why do I say that? Okay, because this, this curve appears all over the place in nature and in finance. And rather than having the horizontal scale be fraction of stake at risk, I can say that horizontal scale represents the cosine of the average, the arithmetic average gain per period to uh, standard deviation per period. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that cosine value could be my horizontal axis. And, and thus, let's say we're talking about federal deficits. If I can increase the variance, all else remaining the same, in period-on-period -period borrowing, I can break the curve of a federal deficit without, let's say, an increase in taxes or a, a reduction in expenditures. It's kind of a wild idea. We can go back and we could say, you know, when Ronald Fisher was looking at the effect of variance on a, a species fitness, okay, he was only looking at a sliver of that spectrum from left to right, and that sliver was to the left of the peak because uh, as variance increased, uh, the, the fitness kept going up. Well, at some point, that flips and you guarantee extinction if the variance in uh, from one generation to the next in a species gets beyond some critical point uh, determined by the cosine of that variance to the average per period. Interesting. So, this stuff happens over and over in training. My point being that there are some very critical geometrical points on that curve or on the n plus 1 uh, dimensional surface in this manifold in n plus 1 space for n components that we can use to satisfy whatever our investment criterion happens to be. Interesting. We're on that, we're on that curve, we're on that surface de facto, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we may be lucky and be at the peak in our trading. Look, I made all this money with this system, and it really wasn't because of the system. It's because you haven't had the blind luck of being at the peak, okay? Right. Uh, so my point is, why not use what we know about the surface to satisfy what our criterion is by being at certain points or how we move about it? The guy who always trades one contract of broken glass, mm -hmm. as his account increases, he moves towards the zero point of the curve. If right. he keeps trading one contract as his account uh, equity decreases, he's moving to the right on the curve. So we're, we're, we're moving through paths in this n plus one dimensional manifold. And uh, the point is, it, it's what happens there that determines how much we make or lose. But to get in the game... We've got to have a positive expectation and, and be pretty certain we're going to have that in the future. I'm rambling on. Sorry, Manesh. I just had to get that off my chest. <laughs> no, no, Ralph. Fast, this is this is really fascinating conversation. I must admit, you you are one original thinker. I must say, I um, make it all up. It's, none of it's true. I'm just making it up as I go. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I really liked about you. <laughs> one of the things that I really liked about uh, your book was its knowledge on pyramiding, pyramiding system. Uh, I remember you said that uh, treat every new edition as a fresh trading system itself, with its own yeah. entry and exit rules. Uh, right. That is profound. In fact, I have incorporated that in my own system as well. Uh, what I wanted to know was that. Uh, which one of the two is more uh, a lucrative methodology? Is it dollar cost averaging or pyramiding? Oh, 
Now, that, that question, let's look at that in the context of what we just discussed, okay? Right. Both of those are a different path on that curve, okay? Right. They're a different motion on that curve. When we're pyramiding, as the value goes up, we're moving to the right, okay? Right. In dollar cost averaging, as the value goes down, we're moving to the left. Right. Okay. We're doing the reverse. Okay. Right. Sometimes I got to think about it too. And uh, so there are two different paths along that curve. And the important point is when you say more lucrative, this is really an ambiguous term because what we want to do is say, which one of these satisfies what our criterion is for being here in a better manner? If our criteria to be here is to take a stab at making a hell of a lot of money in a short period of time, right. then clearly the pyramiding is better. If our, if our criterion is we want to survive for the next 10 years, then the dollar cost averaging will work out better. Uh, so, I mean, it becomes a function of, again, and this is why criterion is such a foundational question, because if you don't have a criterion to anchor what you're doing, it's going to be very difficult to follow your plan from one quarter to the next quarter and so forth, especially as market conditions are changing. You know, it's like being in a casino late at night with all types of things that are trying to distract your attention. <laughs> or it happens in slow motion to make it even harder. <laughs> I mean, it's so, I mean, it's the markets are a very difficult place and, and the criterion anchors you and keeps you on, t on track that way and, and gives you a basis to make your decisions on. Got it. Rather than just whim, you know, it's... You have answered my question. Uh, I got it. So dollar cost averaging, uh, if your time horizon is bigger and survival is the key, pyramiding if your your objective is to maximize profits in short period of time. Right. Right. So uh, Ralph Warren Buffett, uh, when asked about risk, said risk is not knowing what you're doing. Uh, so your betting amount would depend on how much you know. If you know your company inside out, you can bet big. Now, I wanted to ask you, is that all subjective mumbo-jumbo according to you? I mean, his betting 30 to 40% on Amex could have been suicidal in parallel history, right? Right. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about the, the, the distribution of what he was looking at to even answer that. I'm sorry. I just It's a case of I just don't know enough to give you an intelligent answer on that, Manesh. Sure. I'm not trying to dodge the question. I just don't know. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so leave Warren out of it. Uh, okay. Uh, generally, if value investors invest based on their conviction uh, right. on the company, uh, is that a fair thing to do, or do they still have to do the maths behind it? Well, let's let's look at what they're doing. Okay. So they're 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 looking to get a one play, a one shot, steep slope line. Right. So in the context of what we talk about. The first thing you got to ask is why are you doing that? What are you what are you trying to accomplish? Are you just going? You know, I mean, it, it, it's really very neolithic to just say, ah, I just care about getting a, a, a straight line on one play here. <laughs> that you the the, be, the best satisfaction you can get on that is at the end of that one play. That there's there's so much more to it. Right. And, but even before that is, what's the criterion you're trying to satisfy? If your criterion is, I don't care. I have one play I'm going to make in life. This is it, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to bet it on this this one stock. Okay, then that satisfies your criterion. Otherwise, God only knows what the hell you're doing that for. Got it. Because you it. don't know, because you sure don't know. I mean, the guy doing it, I mean, not humanish, but the guy, you know, Warren doesn't know that. Sure. Okay? Sure. Definitely. There's so many things that can happen which are beyond your control, definitely. Exactly. But the one thing that is not beyond our control, Manesh, the one thing in this whole slow motion late night casino that is not beyond our control is how many chips we move off our little pile out into the table. The right. quantity is the one thing we have control over. And, and that is what this surface, this curved line dictates. So how we move our quantity is how we satisfy our criterion. And to be able to do that, we have to have a positive expectation. We right. also have to have a criterion and a horizon to accomplish that within. Right, right, got it. So one of the questions that came to my mind when I was done reading your book was, 
that in my investing circles at least nobody i mean nobody follows the optimized bet sizing model uh, right. and uh, whole of it is based on discretion and and these people have done rather well in stock markets so is it all luck uh because survivorship bias would suggest that for every one such successful person there must be a hundred who didn't make it or went bankrupt well let's let's take let's take a guy who okay one of the things i like to do because i don't know how the future is going to work out okay is i'm interested in what the shape of this surface is under very robust conditions because you know i don't know i don't know what the political backdrop of the united states is going to be 9 months from now i i have so many unknowns i don't know so i need i'm going to be moving about a surface or a curve that i need to determine robustly okay right. so let let's roll back and say okay for the single one uh, component case one of the most robust measures i can make of that is where the peak will be okay now i can make an intelligent guess that the peak of the curve in the future will be approximately or there's a good mathematical reason for my explaining as though the peak of the curve will be at approximately half of what those winning periods in the future over my horizon period time periods in the future as the probability of winning periods in 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 that time window that future time window divided by 2 so let's suppose i expect uh, half of half of those periods will be profitable half of those periods will be a loss i divide 0.5 by 2 i can expect a, a very intelligent guess for where the peak in the future will be is at 0.25 okay got it for for my horizon window in the future to satisfy my criterion over now when you say many guys are have been successful if you look at what happens if you trade even a mediocre strategy at the peak over even uh, not a, not a, a a a very large number of periods or trades but let's say let's say a couple dozen that's all the 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 amount that gets made is staggering okay now you can be very successful you could have made a lot of money at 1/5 of that value so these guys might have traded 0.05 and and quote done very well you know a lot of futures trading rules of thumb were don't risk more than 2% don't risk more than 1% so what does this have the effect of doing it has the effect of moving you very far to the left of the peak of the curve but still where uh the, the end result on that curve is a number greater than 1 so you come out making money uh so and, and I, i wouldn't just i wouldn't call that blind luck but i would say they are on that surface on that curve without realizing it but at a fortuitous point where they maximize being profitable okay mm-hmm. they could have maximized profit by being at the curve and have been wildly uh profitable. I met a, I met a guy in Tokyo a young guy who was an options trader who had made 100 million dollars trading options for himself starting with a, a, a really a, a, a considerably much smaller amount than that and I figured he had inadvertently found a point of of a level of trading aggressiveness that had him at the peak. He was oblivious to that, but that's where he would have been as at or near uh, the peak. So the point being uh this curve and the nature of it and the critical points of it are at work on us whether we acknowledge it or not. Now a lot of guys blindly uh have that work in their favor. And my point is, well, you don't have to do that blindly. You know, you can illuminate yourself to Uh, other points on this curve you might want to be at and it might be that the the futures trader trading at 1 or 2% would have been far better off to have been at the inflection point say got and it. done done a hell of a lot better that's got they, it they, just because their people are oblivious to this doesn't mean that they're going to lose money sure. uh, or not be successful they're going to be successful but they can better satisfy what their investment criterion is by a knowledge of this and positioning themselves on it and part of what my focus has been in recent years is the robust determination of these points in the future got it got it brilliant raf one one last question from my side uh in yeah. your book you have given away your position sizing strategy and you write that it doesn't really matter uh even if i give away such secrets because trader's biggest enemy is not any other trader but he himself so and that is just profound I mean I remember Ed Sekota said something on similar lines so so Ralph tell me how do you constantly strive to improve yourself and protect yourself from yourself 
Uh, well, you know, I, I again, and I go back to the foundation. Okay, what's my criteria? What's my time horizon? How am I going to do this? Okay, and that's what I pursued it to, to stick to. Again, you know, being able to articulate your criteria will help you probably more than anything else to to to, to stick to what what the plan is. And, and I don't change the plan. I mean, and I, and I told you what I was trading in two thousand eight. I trade the exact same thing today. I, I, I've learned not to overexpose myself as I did with my own money back then, but it's the exact same, it's the exact same plan then as now. And I think these things get easier, uh, the longer you're around the markets, that being able to stick to things and not sabotage yourself becomes much easier the longer you're around the markets. You know, it's, it's very hard to find any guy around the markets who, uh, experience trading failure because of someone other than himself. I mean, it's common to blame it on, oh, the news item came out, this or that. I was listening to this guy. <laughs> no, no. You're the guy who moved your chips out there, okay? Right. And you're the guy who decided how many chips you were going to move out there. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's you have no one to blame but yourself. And, and, and after a while, you know, you get older and you get a lot more trading experience and so forth. And, and you, it's e easier to get control of that type of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting that you say that, Ralph. Uh, I was just thinking that your your logic of defining the criteria can actually be applied on life as well. Uh, what is my purpose of existence? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's things that, uh, you know, I mean, most people don't know what makes them tick. They only know that they tick. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, anchors we need to have out there in all sorts of ways to keep our thinking on track. Excellent. Excellent. One last bit, Ralph. Uh, uh, please recommend some people I should profile in my podcast. Hmm. I don't know if you spoke to Larry Williams. Uh, no, uh, I would love to. Uh, he's, he's a guy who's been around a long time. His email <clears throat> is, I'll get that for you while we speak it up. Beck, what I'll do is I'll type it into the... Uh, I'll type in a text box here. Let me just make sure I got it right. Okay. This is one guy I would do. And he's been around a long time. He'd be a, a good guy to, to do it with. There's his email address. Yeah, I think it's I have a, his indicators on my Amy Broker as well. Yeah, yeah. He'd be a good guy to talk to. And there's a guy with a lot of experience. And I had the pleasure of working for him in the late 1980s. Yes. Uh, in fact, in one of your interviews, I remember you saying that uh, he's had a considerable influence on on you. Yeah, I mean, he be. I mean, he and I have very different approaches, and you know, I mean, we 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 talk every now and then, but we haven't traded together since the late 1980s. There's been a, quite a divergence in how we approach the market since then. But he'd be a he'd be an excellent guy to to contact, and I think your 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 listenership would really like to hear. Definitely, they will. They'll love to uh, listen to him. Uh, yeah. So, for those of you who have still not read Ralph's amazing books on position sizing, please do. Uh, you can visit his site www.ralphwins.com for more. We will provide you with a link at the end of the post podcast notes as well. Uh, Ralph, thank you very much for your time. Manesh, uh, thank you. I had a pleasure talking to you. You likewise. You, you take care now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.